this episode, Trace Keene shares his experience hiking the trail near Yuma, Arizona, thoughts about his ancestor, and how he came to write a musical production to share the battalion's story. today to have a chance to visit with one of our friends that was not only a huge support to us on the trek um, from a logistical and material standpoint, but also uh, someone who has a deep love for the Mormon Battalion story and through his different talents and abilities is out there sharing that with other people as well. So today we're visiting with Trace Skeen, uh, who right now is in Logan, Utah. And Trace, thank you so much for uh, making time to chat with us today about some of the memories that you have of your time with us on the trail. Oh, happy to reconnect with you. Well, I did mention that Trace has some unique um, skills and talents that he's using to share the battalion story. And before we get too far afield, I would like to remind all of our listeners that's one of the purposes of these podcast is the desire that as you're listening to the different aspects that you might hear about the battalion that your imagination may get sparked and you may get interested in some part of the story and want to learn more and maybe you will become like Trace and Kevin and get hooked on it and then want to go out and share it with others so as you listen to to these two men today uh, just know that they're that's how they began i'm pretty sure i know that's how kevin started kevin's got a comment and so trace shares through music and uh, other people could contribute perhaps through art uh, we have a lot of uh themes if you will uh about the battalion's uh, excursion that uh, of course they didn't have photography but we could represent that with uh, artwork. So if somebody out there is an artist and would be willing to consider doing some work, um, we could probably point you to some ideas that uh, need to be illustrated. And Trace, I was going to get into your musical capabilities and your, your musical later, but um, how are you using your skills and your talents to share the story? How did you even get that idea? Oh, let's see. Great question, Denny. Um, you know, maybe I could give a little bit of background that, that can uh, kind of disclose where my interest came from. My parents uh, grew up in, uh, in the Ogden, Utah area. And in uh, 1945, they completed a, a, a dam in eastern Oregon on a very small stream, uh, smaller than the Logan River. And it created a reservoir 50 miles long, and it put thousands of acres under irrigation. And so there was this great immigration of Utah families who were suffering from lack of water, who moved up to eastern Oregon and kind of uh, created a, another Mormon community up there. So that said, all through my youth, my family talked about the pioneer spirit. And they talked about that we had roots in the Mormon battalion, but never went into it into any great depth. But through the years, I tucked that information in the back of my mind and uh, eventually got to the point that I really enjoyed Western history as a whole. And then particularly, I was intrigued by my 
own family's history with the pioneer migration uh, to Utah. And, uh, and so it, it always piqued my interest. So then uh, through the years, when I started studying it more and when some, some of the great books came out that had concentrated on the Mormon battalion, I, I got involved with it more. Um, interestingly enough, I accepted assignment in 1979 in Amarillo, Texas. So I moved from Eugene, Oregon to Amarillo, Texas, and I was operating the emergency ambulance service there at the time. And there was a lady who was a member of the uh, Daughters of the American Revolution, and she was so intrigued that this Mormon guy had moved into the community, and she... <laughs> forced herself on me with history and did remarkable history from my family, including some of the records of my great-great-grandfather who was in the Mormon battalion and the military records uh, that I had never seen before. And uh, so that kind of kick-started that. And, and she, <laughs> she kind of forced me to take a new and deeper interest in my pioneer history. So that was a that was a lot of it uh, that came during that time in the in the very early eighties. And so, what is the name of your ancestor? Joseph Skeen Senior, uh, and he was in Company E. And uh, through the years, I've met others whose relatives were also in Company E, and it's kind of interesting how a a bond forms with them. You know, when they you discover that not only were their ancestors in the in the Mormon battalion, but also in the same company, and some of them even in the detachment that took sick to Pueblo, which my great great grandfather uh, was uh, assigned to as well. It sounds like you had an interesting introduction to your family history, first from your family, but then through this woman who was passionate about what she was learning and what she could provide to you. And you're doing the same thing. And I think that's one of the reasons Kevin is as involved as he is, wanting to share that with other people and try to get them excited. How did you meet Kevin? I honestly don't know. Wow, Kevin, you might have to help out on this. Um, <laughs> I don't really remember the original Genesis. I remember that we talked a lot um, on the phone as you were getting ready. I think maybe I read an article somewhere about you starting on this trek to follow the, the route. And that piqued my interest. And uh, I think maybe I made contact with you. Um, I know I wanted to help out as much as I could. Uh, so I was in a position of, of getting you some medical supplies to take care of all the blisters you were going to be developing. Um, and I think I think also provided a, a generator uh, for you that uh, could follow along in the trailer that you were you were pulling along the track. And then eventually we hooked up in southern Arizona, and that might have been the first time we actually met face to face. Well, that's the way I remember it. You'd contacted either by email or by phone the first time, and then it just uh, developed into conversation. And you said, you know, what could I do to help? And you gave a little bit of your background and medical supplies and said oh yeah we can use that and yes i did get a few blisters <laughs> trace what did you think when you heard that kevin thought he wanted to hike the full trail i i was 
incredibly envious of him. I thought, what a major uh, uh, task to take on. But I, uh, I also thought that was that was going to be a great experience for him. And I kind of lived vicariously through his, a lot of his postings and some of his emails and so forth. You came and hiked with us. Was there a specific reason that you chose to come and hike with us near Welton, Arizona? Well, at that time, even though I was living in Utah, at a place in Mesa, Arizona that we would go to in the winter. So geographically, it was uh, a little easier for us to get down there and, and meet you. So nothing really special about Arizona. In, in fact, um, as I mentioned earlier, my my forefather, Joseph Skeen, uh, departed from the, the battalion main body uh, and to take the 6th Detachment to Pueblo. So he had already left the main body of the soldiers by that time. Okay. Well, what do you remember about that day, hiking with Kevin and Peter? Um, well, let, let me kind of relate it to something. My wife and I, a few years ago, uh, traveled to Petra, Jordan. And we drove from, uh, we took a car from Amman, Jordan to Petra, which is where uh, I understand the children of Israel marched for all those years. And I was so impressed with how anyone could survive on that dry, desolate country. And and the area that we went to where the, the battalion marched through Arizona was very similar to that, just dry and desolate. And of course, water was shortage of water uh, and what they had to go through to, to just get any hydration at all. But I was so excited to be on the trail and to be part of something that I felt was so significant. And then, uh, and then we found, you may recall, we found that uh, trail marker and we got a photo op there with that. And it was, a, it was just a really good feeling to connect was something that I thought was pretty profound in my own family history as well as church history. Yeah, that was at Antelope Hills, I remember. I think that was the name of it, yeah. And we got to have a little fun, Peter and you and I. Yeah. We went up on the hill, and what did we do? We rolled some boulders down. Kept kept going to a larger boulder until you could get one that would make it all the way to the bottom. <laughs> Which, of course, the battalion guys actually record in their journals. Some of the young guys would go up there and roll the boulders down the mountain. So yeah. we, we felt we had to reenact that. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just the conversation along the trail was uh, was just really enjoyable. And it makes you wonder, you know, what did they talk about? They didn't, they didn't have the ability to check out the, the national news each night on NPR radio or, or whatever, you know, what did they talk about? My guess is that they had a lot of introspection, a lot of time for themselves and their inner thoughts. And of course, their thoughts for their families that they had left back in winter quarters and, and uh, Omaha. And, and, you know, and that was a large part of my musical we can talk about in a minute, but not about the the confrontations they had with the Mexicales, but leaving their wives and their children, never really knowing if they were going to see each other again. Such uncertainty when they departed, yet they they faithfully 
uh, followed the counsel of, of Brigham Young and, and, and went off on the journey. I mean, that was one of the major songs for my production, uh, the song Angels on Moonbeams. Uh, they just had to be giving a lot of thought and yearnings for their for their wives and their children. Just appreciate the time uh, we spent with you, Trace. It was a lot of fun. That was that was a great time. We had a nice steak dinner that night, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I was delighted that my two sisters came over from California to uh, perform at a that fireside in Yuma. Uh, performed one or two of the songs. So that that was that was a great real treat for us. Talented family. We enjoyed meeting them all. Well, I don't know how talented we are, but we think we are, so that's what counts. <laughs> you sing on key. That's pretty good. That's pretty important. <laughs> so let's let's talk about your musical. We've alluded to it, but for everyone to know, Trace has created and written a musical production about the battalion and. Two of his sisters joined us in Arizona uh, to share some of those songs with us. So Trace, why don't you give us the background and the story of your musical? Because I'm sure people are interested in how they can enjoy that. Well, James Mincher is one of my favorite authors. Uh, he's able to take uh, tidbits of history and create stories around that. And I've tried to replicate that a little bit with just family stories, always regretting that we don't have all the details for the journal. For example, Joseph Skeen, through all those experiences that he had, we ended up with only three pages of journal entries. And most of that was recording how many miles they marched on each given day. So my challenge to myself was to do enough research that I could start to build scenarios of what those days would have been like and what it would have been like when they were being recruited uh, initially. And the pressure they were under, they had a very limited time to form 500 volunteers. And if they hadn't, if they hadn't been able to make that timeline, the whole gig was off. And uh, I have always felt that the en enlistment of the soldiers, the 500, some variation of that, the 500, um, in the absence of that, you would have had a mark on this country's history of so many deaths out in the wilderness that they would not have survived without the monies uh, that the government paid them uh, for the march. So that just always piqued my interest. And, and then particularly with Brigham Young's statement about that their efforts would be remembered to the last generation. And I, even though we talked about it when I was young, growing up, that we had a, a family history with the battalion, I thought, you know, it's not being, their sacrifice is not being acknowledged anywhere near what it should be. And so uh, I put pen to paper and started working on stories and scripts. And uh, I eventually I wrote the lyrics to, I think, 11 original songs. And then I had a fellow named Rick Wilson, who was the music director for a large uh, North Carolina Baptist Church, and also the director of uh, a re recently retired director from the music department of the University of North Carolina, uh, did all the instrumentation for it. And we worked back and forth through the mail for some time. And then eventually I went out to North Carolina, 
sat down with him and we finished up the instrumentation. So all of the music for the musical numbers was on CDs and uh, and that's what I used to, uh, for the cast uh, to start rehearsing for the musical. So that's kind of how that came about and the more I got into it and I guess I have to say that one particular really moving moment was the letter from George Washington Taggart and I'm, I know you guys both rem recall that letter but he had just come back from uh with Jefferson Hunt back from a, a, a scouting trip uh out into the to the Rockies had come back his wife Fanny was still back in Nauvoo he's a young man he can't wait, wait to get back to see her they finally come into camp just as the recruiting process is going on for the battalion and He's instructed that he'll be joining the Mormon battalion. And he went to the brethren, to Brigham and some of the others, and asked if he couldn't be forgiven. He had a young daughter back in Nauvoo, along with his, uh, his wife, Fanny, and kind of begged them to let him forego the battalion and go back and get his wife and bring her out west. And they said, no, the pressure's on. We need you in the battalion. And so he penned this letter that is the most tender writing that I've seen in probably ever. The, the, his final words in there telling, telling his wife how sad he is not to be able to join her, but to keep the faith, everything will work out. And his final words was, tell my daughter not to forget her father. And I just thought that the turmoil for any of us would be leaving our children behind under those circumstances. That's that's special. And that's stuck with me uh, all these years. I had, when I first started reading Dan Tyler, you know, I felt like, oh my gosh, this is kind of over the top. This is so exaggerated. And then you realize that yeah, you know, Alan made, Captain Allen made his pitch at Mount Pisgah and then over at Council Bluffs. And then Brigham Young goes out, you know, beats the bushes and tries to get volunteers. But it's not really until July 13, when he returns from Mount Pisgah, that they actually begin the official enlistment. And so when uh, Thomas Kane says, it only took him two or three days to raise the men necessary, that literally is true. They started the actual formal enlistment the afternoon of the 13th and by the morning of the 16th they had four full companies which was the minimum number necessary to form the battalion and that's when they did the muster Thursday morning and uh, so they had 400 400 official uh, had about another 50 unofficially uh, signed up ready to go and then it took them a couple more days uh, to the 21st to get the other 50 men to come up with 496 total. And when you talk about that letter and those last words, um, my ancestor, Alva Felt, didn't make it home. He died and he had little children. So, you know, that impressed me when you said that. Those little girls remembered their father. Yeah, and uh, Joseph Skeen, of course, was with the... Was I mentioned before, is with the detachment went to Pueblo and then on into Salt Lake. And then he eventually went back to um, Omaha to get his wife. And he had a child that died two weeks before he got back to them. Yeah. So just a lot of, a lot of pain and suffering.
what is the status of your musical now? I've had a, a number of people who've made some inquiries about wanting to put it on at their local level. I would say the quality of the production, and I, I was very happy with it, uh, but I would say the quality is probably somewhere between a, a upper level roadshow and a full-blown musical, uh, somewhere in between there. We put it on just around the corner from Jefferson Hunt Park up in uh, Huntsville, Utah. And so there was some connection there, but uh, we did three performances. It was, uh, it was a full house, all three standing ovations. And so as a director, a producer, I, I was very pleased with it. And it was mostly local talent. Although I brought in uh, some of my talented family members from around the Western states, Washington, California, Oregon, Idaho, Arizona, who also portrayed various roles in the musical. And I was personally, that was very satisfactory to me to, to have them as my family involved because I, I think Joseph Skeen would have been very pleased to see his posterity honoring the battalion. Well, I remember that we were there for one of the night's performances, and it was significant to me that you were having it uh, in an area that was close to a battalion member's yeah. home. Well, we were scheduled to have it outdoors, and uh, we ended up having to move inside of a, an old stake center there because of horribly inclement weather. If we'd, uh, if we'd set up a tent, kind of like Kevin's tents he used on the trip, uh, if we had stayed outside, that thing would have blown off over into Ogden somewhere. Oh, my goodness. Well, are you planning to make it available again or to do any other performances? Or how could people um, hear the music? Well, it's it's on. Uh, it was on my bucket list to do additional productions. And I I did a, a condensed uh, production of it up uh, Logan Canyon about three years ago. And I kind of checked that off. Um, I have available script and lyrics and uh, the original CDs of the music. Um, it'd, it'd be very, I think, very feasible if someone wanted to put it on at the local level. And I'd be more than happy to not only provide them the, the, those tools, but to consult with them to whatever degree uh, they would like as well. Wow, that's great gracious of you. So I guess I have a question. What is your favorite song? Do you have one song that really tugs at your heart? Uh, oh gosh. Uh, yeah, I have 11 of them. <laughs> uh, I put a lot of heart and soul into those. There's, there's one song I mentioned earlier, Angels on Moonbeams. So that song takes place on opposite sides of the stage with Amanda uh, uh, Skeen, the wife of Joseph Skeen, in her encampment back at Council Bluffs, and Joseph off by himself during a night encampment. They're both staring up at the moon and singing to each other, knowing that that's their one connection that night is that they both can look on this same moon and it's an expression of their love and 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 uh, their feelings towards one another so that's that's a favorite the other one is is one that we actually performed uh, had, had a 
uh, a group perform in the tabernacle during the pioneer day back in 2010, I guess. Uh, and it's called Bring Him Home. And again, it's sung uh, by the women that were left behind on one side of the stage, the men that are out on the trail on the other. And the theme for the musical throughout, you know, is, uh, is that they're going home to a place they've never seen. And, and that was kind of their, I think, an underlying feelings that they had is that they were finally going to have peace and security and uh, uh, collaboration in the Salt Lake Valley whenever they were there and whenever they could meet up with their families again. So Bring Them Home is, uh, is are the, again, those two groups. Uh, it's kind of a prayer to the Lord. Watch out for them. Take care of them. And until we meet again, and if we don't, then we will have expressed our love appropriately for them. That is a powerful song. I remember it. Yeah. And then the, uh, the concluding production number, the final number is the, is a combination of come, come you saints. And, uh, uh we hear the desert singing. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, combine those two songs in together. Uh, and uh, th that was a that was a moving uh, song as well. And it brings those pioneer songs that we celebrate on Pioneer Day. Uh, I I like to see them brought to life, and I love hearing ward congregations sing in full voice uh, those pioneer songs. Yeah. Your your other song is "Shall the Youth of Zion Falter." That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then they join together for the chorus. They join together uh, with as we hear the desert singing the chorus. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, Thomas Kane, uh, Kevin. That man is such a hero to me. Uh, you know, when you read and realize how committed he became to the church and recognize the difficulties that they were going through, the unfairness of how they were being treated, and then used his political clout, or, or at least his father's, who was the attorney up in Philadelphia, to get a, 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 to get a discussion with the president to um, pitch the enlistment of the, of the soldiers, or to at least pitch the solicitation for help and uh thomas king just led him right through there and and uh wow what a what a savior he was to the to the church because of his influence and then his continued support as he went back and helped with the recruiting and and so forth but he had some pretty tender words too when um, he said something to the effect i don't have it in front of me now but something to the effect he referred to these poor people that have been mistreated. And he said, it may be my lifelong work to do all I can for these people. And that's a, that's pretty committed testimony from him. Yeah. He, yeah. He was very much supportive of the people. Uh, he, he recognized the stresses they were under and the unfairness that uh, had been foisted upon them. Now we did a timeline uh, as part of the work that we've been doing, the little study group 
we did a very detailed timeline on the recruitment process. And it turns out Kane himself had almost nothing to do with the offer. And uh, most of the recruiting effort, of course, was coming through Brigham Young. Now, Thomas Kane did make it there uh, to the Bluffs area, and he was involved in encouraging people. And, and he certainly was a, he was a, uh, uh, an advocate and a cheerleader. And, and yeah, his influences may have been long-term felt in Washington, but at the initial outset, he had almost nothing to do with the initial offer by Polk and, uh, and the early recruiting. Well, I, I think Kevin, where he had the greatest influence was with, uh, um, it was a Joseph Fielding that went before President Polk. Jesse Little. Oh no. Oh no. He, uh, again, we, we timelined this out. Um, Kane did not arrive in Washington until after the offer had been made. The thing that dropped out of this is he had almost nothing to do with the offer. No, I, I'm not referring to the offer. I'm, th I, I'm actually referring more to the encouragement. From my, my research is that he encountered, um, uh, help me, Dennis, is it Joseph Little? Jesse Little. Jesse Little, thank you. That he encountered him uh, doing a soapbox sermon on the street and uh, learned about their attitudes towards slavery. I liked what he heard from from Jesse and and uh, made an acquaintance with him. No, that but I my research showed that he encouraged him. And he said, "You've got to meet with the president and know that you have these these." aces up your sleeve, so to speak, and that is that you have all these uh, members of your faith headed out west, and he can't afford to alienate you, um, because uh, Great Britain had had made some soft offers about providing some help to the church, and California was still up in the air as to who was going to eventually end up with it, so yeah. Anyway, that's my recollection, and that's that's why I, I just have such a, a strong feelings towards his contribution to this whole process. Yeah, let's compare notes later on that. Well, with all of the the research and the contemplation and the trying to understand the battalion experience, what has that done? For you personally, Trey. So I have a I have six siblings, so a fairly large family, and uh, it's it's made me really focus on on our family histories and getting them recorded and getting them uh, a place where they will won't be lost again and so difficult to come up with, and so I'm a real advocate of uh, of uh, family search to record those things, but it's just. I, I have to tell you, as I'm living my life, I I feel like Joseph Skeen is looking over my shoulder. And, I, uh, you know, I want to live a life not only that I can be proud of, but that that he would be proud of as well. You know, I, I think about if you've seen that movie, Saving Private Ryan, 
in that very closing scene when he's telling the other soldier, earn this, that, that's a feeling that I get, is earn the sacrifices that they made. Oh, I love that. I've been thinking about that just since we talked to our friend about the Mississippi Saints, and it really has made me think, you know, what am I doing if my ancestors were watching me, what would they think? Was all of their effort and their sacrifice worth it? Because they did it for us, right? Right. So it really does make you want to honor their lives and the way they led them. Yeah, it's, it's very much uh, like the old saying that uh, supposedly some of the Indian tribes had that, you know, you, you're living for seven generations downstream from where you are but uh you you know you're stuck in the middle uh you've got generations before that you want to live up to their example and their sacrifices and at the same time uh, you want to set a good example for those that are to follow yeah that's that's a very good thought kevin yeah it goes both ways when I was walking in Albuquerque with Mark Cummings one day, we started talking about this very thing. I bet those battalion members, you know, they had the hope that what they were doing would be for the benefit of their families and their following generations. But I don't really think they had an idea how valuable um, what they did was and the impact and the consequences of what they were doing for the rest of us. And I, I think it's the same thing for us, as Kevin said. We don't realize often um, how what we do with our lives is going to impact those who follow. I, I, that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, for my family members who have not found the need to start on their personal histories, I, uh, I kind of tried them a little bit. I said, you know, you're your great-grandchildren are going to wonder what your thoughts were when you were going through this pandemic and the changes that were taking place. Have you recorded them anywhere? And uh, most most of us have not, have not, you know. And so that'll be a missing link to to our gen our generations if we don't get that on paper or, or somehow recorded. Yeah. I think my one girlfriend has 438 typed pages. Wow. of her experience during COVID. So her family's going to get an ear for <laughs> Good. Good for her. We will not. <laughs> just, for the, just for the rest of us, that may be overdoing it a little bit. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, as we wrap this up, Trace, is there any other thing that, you know, you had thought of that you might like to share that we didn't cover? Oh, I, no. I, I appreciate you. I pre appreciate the prompting to pull out some of those memories and talk about them and the opportunity to share that uh, with others and as well as with myself. Um, no, I just, uh, it, it's just a topic that was a, a really occupied a lot of my time and, and my mind and my creativity for a number of years as I was developing this. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for it. Uh, and that have that history and and uh, it it means a lot to me. Um, I still don't feel like the battalion's getting the recognition that it deserves 
for literally saving the church in those early days. I honestly believe without the financial assistance that was generated because of the battalion, uh, that it saved the, the desert from thousands of graves of people that would have died. So I, I think that's momentous. I do have to throw in that I'm so grateful for government bureaucracy that yeah. kind of screwed up that whole thing about when the soldiers were going to get paid. <laughs> that worked out pretty dang well. Yeah. Share that with us. Well, the original order from President Polk was that they were to be paid only upon reaching California and only if the war was still going on and only if this and only if that. And uh, with the uh, bureaucracy that sometimes occurs, they uh, they enrolled them early on and started paying them right away. And plus the uh, uniform allowance that they didn't have the uniforms to put on them and that generated additional money. And you know, not not all of those 500 men contributed all of their funds back to Brigham Young to support the people, but the bulk of it, the bulk of it came through. And none of that was easy. There were no written contracts or anything like you'd have today. It was it was all done on even less than a handshake, I think. But that was very fortuitous that, that the way the compensation eventually came about. We were talking uh, the other day in our podcast about the Mississippi Saints, about how many tender mercies happened with the Moore Battalion. And there certainly were a lot of those, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Before we sign off, if you could use one word to describe your experience on the trail back in 2008, what would it be and why? Uh, well, good question. I, well, there's a number of words I could come up with, but one that does come to mind is adaptability. They were in for many surprises once they enlisted. Um, they were not seasoned pioneers people, you know, they were uh, they didn't have a lot of experience. And so for them to be able to survive through that and continue on, uh, I, I was just impressed with the diligence. Uh, this is a long answer to your question, but I I tell people today when I'm talking about the, the recruitment and the enlistment that in today's environment, we'd sit down with a sheet of paper and we'd list out the pros and list out the cons and study that thing for days before we would make a commitment. And in Joseph Skeen's own words, they asked us to join the battalion. And so we did. And that, and that was it. Yeah, the, la the last 50 people that uh, were recruited, uh, that was on the morning of the 19th and the 20th. They met for church on the 19th and the morning of the 20th. They marched down to Sarpy's and, and signed up. That's, that's less than 24 hours to get ready with your family and make the arrangements if you could for your family's care and then go enlist. That's incredible to me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it just is another example of the faith that these people had and um, their willingness to do what they were asked by a prophet of God. So that's why they marched. It wasn't because the government was going to pay them money. All right. Yeah. We march all day and along the way We fear no greater doom 
Not the Mexicali feds nor the dry stream beds Compared to the old iron spoon Oh, the iron spoon will spell your doom So don't you call off sick Where you'll be forced to take a lick of sorts From the rusty old iron spoon Last night I ate a piece of bad rattlesnake My tummy's shaken like a tomb But I'll not partake, not in for heaven's sake From the rusty old iron spoon Oh, the iron spoon will spell your doom So don't you call off sick Where you'll be forced to take a lick of sorts From the rusty old iron spoon Caleb, you were green in the gills. Tell him what happened to you. The old dock is tough and it's punishment enough. Each morning his call can be heard. You can huff and puff, but there's no call in his bluff when he reaches for that old iron spoon. Oh, the iron spoon will spell your doom. So don't you call off sick. Where you'll be forced to take a lick of sorts From the rusty old iron spoon Oh no, don't be caught licking Or like Joe, you'll be stricken And death will quicken If you take a licking From that crusty and sickening Rusty old iron spoon Never know 
yet faith portends, and I must obey. Yet more time and miles divide us until we meet in that promised land. And there our love, like a rose, will blossom as once again we'll join heart and hand. For our lives are sealed in heaven. There's no mountain we can't climb. This simple man with his wife beside him, our future Watch o'er you always, and be your constant friend to sustain and e'er protect you till I hold you in my arms again. Till I hold you in my arms again. Thank you so much for making time for us today. It's been fun to get to visit with you again. Well, thank you. And thank you for your great work and for keeping this topic alive. And and it's a, I know it's a blessing the lives of a lot of people. And I really appreciate that. We hope so. So good to talk to you again. Mm -hmm.